1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. You know, last week when we last met, uh, we were kind of... Crouching up towards Armageddon, basically, <laughs> right? I mean, we recorded last Wednesday, and notionally, the the apocalyptic vote, the, you know, the sort of the 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 final, final, final deadline was Thursday, the next day. And as we know, that did not happen. And then it was set for a day later, Friday, and then we know that did not happen. And then something kind of funny happened where you know, we sort of moved through the legislative apocalypse and, you know, kind of sort sort of like, you know, when you, when, when you're flying, right. When you, when you're, when you're taking a trip, uh, you're flying somewhere, sometimes you fly through a storm, right. And you, and you're kind of stormy and there's, you know, got a lot of turbulence and there's rain and all this stuff. Suddenly like, woo! Oh, the sun's <laughs> back out. The, the 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 storm is 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 behind us, and that that sort of thing can be um, you know ex- accentuated with with jet travel since you're obviously moving at your own uh, what you know 550 miles an hour or whatever it is. But that seems kind of like what happened because this was sort of do or die. Joe Biden's whole agenda up in the air and 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 everything, and then that vote never happened and the next day it was kind of like you know what they're linked again and we're going to take a few more weeks at this and we're going to make it happen and uh there was there, there was a lot of fireworks and you know one of the things that uh i was talking about in real time is you had a lot of kind of pretty crazy headlines of you know joe biden's agenda implodes uh the left revolts the joe biden sides with the left uh linkage i there was actually i was um i had to uh stop at a i was you know i didn't have covid but i was out over the weekend and i was i was somewhere where i was having bad allergies so i had to stop at a cvs to get some benadryl right and i was in there and i was looking at the paper copy of the new york times and i see that it has this line is that for the first time joe biden conceded the bills are linked. And I was like, what, what what planet am I on here? Like do we not do we do we have we forgotten that there was a whole like mini scandal like 2 months ago where he said he would he would veto the the hard infrastructure bill if if the two didn't remain linked? I mean like what is going on? And then this guy Josh Gottheimer, right, who's really the guy who got us into this whole fix based on nothing right? He's the one who forced Nancy Pelosi to schedule this vote for the 27th, which then was put off till Thursday, which what was the 29th or something like, but he's the one who jammed everything up with his deadline for the infrastructure bill. And you didn't have an agreement on the reconciliation bill. So all the drama tied to him. And uh, afterwards, he put out this and, and, you know, a day before, I go, was it Thursday? I think, I think there, was, there were quotes Thursday morning. Someone talked to uh, Gottheimer and said, yep, we're going to be cracking the champagne. It's looking good. We're going to be celebrating sipping champagne tonight. You know, real cocky. And, uh, and basically, he just got run down. That didn't work out. And, and, like, I don't think anybody else, no one else on the playing field was cocky like that. The mansion cinema types were sort of, you know, trying trying not to get forced to kind of put their cards on the table. Uh, uh, Rep Jayapal, who's the head of the uh, uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus, was sort of like, we're serious. We're not, you know, you got to tell us where you're at, but not, but not cocky, right? But Gottheimer's like, oh, man. He had it all like, you know, he had it all kind of like wrapped up in a bow. And then it did not work out that way. And he put out, the and and a little backstory here. When I, um, I don't think I've ever met Josh Gottheimer, although maybe I'm forgetting, you know, cross paths at some point. But we actually have a lot of mutual friends. And when I got to D.C. uh, about 20 years ago, um, that friend set was kind of overlapping with mine. Right So, so it kind of, I know that group of people. There's a whole group that were, they were speechwriters for Bill Clinton in the late '90s, as Gottheimer was. So that's a whole kind of scene and everything. So anyway, uh, Gottheimer puts out this press release that is scalding and basically calling Nancy Pelosi a liar. She lied to him, she betrayed the country. And man, I have never seen any any member of uh, any Democrat, let alone a member of that caucus, talk publicly about Nancy Pelosi in that way ever. I'm not saying there aren't people who aren't critics of Nancy Pelosi, but I've never seen anyone talk about her that way. And what it struck, and, and then it came out a little later that, you know, he, he's got that, not that group of nine people that eventually went to a dozen people or whatever, you know, the sort of the quote unquote moderates in the House. And what came out a bit after that, um, after he released that statement, was that the original statement, or, you know, the original version of the statement, was they were all supposed to sign it. And basically, the the rest of them were like, no, (laughs) I'm not signing that thing. And now they put out press releases, they were very disappointed, blah, 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 blah. But the rest of them just like, no, no, dude, I'm not putting... I'm not putting my name under that. And he did. And it was very striking to me because uh, I think I, I, I wrote as this was happening, you don't see like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema putting out statements like that. A, l- a few days later, she did put a statement out that was a little like that, right? But you don't see that. And, and, and you know why? Because they're still at the table. The, the the basic story of what happened Thursday and Friday and Saturday is that the rest of the party, spearheaded by the Progressive Caucus, but really the rest of the congressional party, said to those two or those three, you're not going to dictate to us here. We are not going to pass your bill and then you just decide whatever we get, you know, totally your call on the in, on the reconciliation bill. Jaya Paul and others were kind of saying, hey, tell us what your number is. They weren't saying it has to be 3.5 trillion or forget it. They were saying, look, we've got to have an understanding. You're not going to dictate to us. And the upshot of that whole drama was they got back with some clout and leverage themselves. But it's still mostly Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema's game. They still have the big leverage. The rest of the people just kind of got back into the game, as it were. So Joe Manchin doesn't need to put out a press release like that because he's mostly still in charge. And it was just striking to me that with Gottheimer, first of all, I'm really curious if his pal mentor Mark Penn is the one who wrote that statement for him or kind of directed it. But like, you need to to take a deep breath sometime. And not, and not just, just not speak that way, just because it has an effect. People don't forget stuff like that. Um, but the real thing was, again, is that he kind of played his hand and he lost. And I don't think anybody's going back to Josh Gottheimer now and say, oh, please, can you help us? So that was, that was sort of one of the, um, one of the, uh, I don't want to say few bright lights to it, but that was fun. Seeing him go down that hard because his role in this has been so destructive Um, in many ways, even, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who've got a lot of answering to do for things that have happened in this process. Um, He is 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 very much at the top of the list. So in any case, now we're back to kind of not square one, but we're back to what seems like a few weeks of of presumably negotiation to you get some sort of like package understanding go through we've also got this debt limit thing which is a, a a you know another substantively unrelated but mechanically related thing that's happening um and so we're going to talk about all that and and look things are not you know things are uh the president's polls aren't great the democrats polls aren't terribly great right now there is a there is a price that you pay for this kind of wrangling. People get disenchanted. So in any case, we are going to talk about all that. And uh, Kate is going to, you know, Kate was actually, I, I'm I'm sitting here watching this on Twitter, basically. Kate's actually up there and, and, and talking to everybody. And she's been up there since. So she's going to give us some color. But before uh, we get to that, let me remind you that, uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, experience the freshest way to brew cold brew with, with Grady's Cold Brew Kit. The ultra-convenient all-in-one kit comes packed with Grady's famous New Orleans-style coffee blend of 100% Arabica beans and imported French chicory. No need for any equipment. You just add water to the reusable spigot pouch to brew 36 cups of bold velvety smooth iced coffee. And the best part, no waiting in lines or paying high coffee shop prices. Grady's pours directly from your fridge and cost less than a buck a cup. If you're ready to give it a try, get 25% off your first order at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. And I'll tell you, you know, I've used this. I've used this uh what, what's the official name for it here? Uh what well, oh, the reusable spigot pouch. So it really works. It's kind of like this bag. And and you put the little the little bean bag pouches in there and you fill the bag with water and you seal it up and you let it sit for like twelve hours or twenty-four hours or whatever it is. And it's pretty awesome. And then you just then you just uh you know, you kind of serve it out of the fridge. So uh with that little extended um sponsorship message there. So so Kay, what is up? I mean, you you were there and and like just just give us the whole deal. What what the hell is going on up there? And what's going on now?
0: Yeah, it's funny because last week was so frenzied, you know, leadership was meeting like every half hour with different kind of stakeholders, you know, Pelosi in particular would meet with Jayapal for two hours and then would meet with some moderates for two hours, then would meet with Schumer for two hours, then would meet with the White House liaisons for two hours. And it was just like that all the time. People were being pulled into meetings, um, tons of reporters there. And a sense of real desperation from Democrats that kind of crescendoed on Wednesday, because I think the fear was very real that they would hold the vote on the bipartisan bill, that it would pass, and that would be pretty much the death knell for reconciliation. And then we had all kinds of moving parts, like whether House Republicans were going to vote for it or not, which, you know, as we spoke about then, could be a huge threat to Democrats for the, the aforementioned reason, that I could kill reconciliation. And then pretty much shortly after we podcasted on Wednesday, on Thursday, things just, it felt different. A big part of that was uh, the reporting that Politico had first on the previously undisclosed memo that Manchin and Schumer had kind of weirdly signed from earlier in the summer that detailed some of Manchin's demands on reconciliation, which I gotta tell you, it really just, it unlocked a lot of positive emotion from Democrats, which is so funny, right? Because the demands were very reductive, you know, Uh, a very small package, cannot include this, must not start debate until October. But I think people were like, okay, finally, at least we can start negotiating. At least we have a number. And that- And right. then soon after that came out, Manchin kind of held a big presser where he basically just confirmed 1.5 is still my, my opening number. He wouldn't respond when people said, will you go higher? So it seemed pretty clear that's his opening bid. Um, and it just it really kind of the reconciliation negotiation machine just reared back to life. And as that was happening, then the the chances of a bipartisan vote just kind of got further and further away. I mean, leadership was... I think, pretty much just for the benefit of the Josh Gottheimers per t- trying to come to a framework agreement, which I think, you know, some kind of a top line number, some kind of parameters to give to House progressives that would satisfy them, then they could vote on the bipartisan bill. But, you know, I don't think there's any way that Democratic leadership actually thought they'd be able to pull that together in 24 hours. And they were not ultimately able to.
1: And and yet they they did spend, I mean, Friday seemed like they maybe didn't quite have their heart in it, but it certainly seemed like they were really trying. Mm-hmm. On Thursday and 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 that gets to so here's another question I have for you. One of the real weirdnesses to how everything shook out and this was what was behind a lot of this, you know, these weird press headlines is that on its face the the leadership was trying to get To pass the biff bill Mm -hmm. the hard infrastructure bill um and you know pelosi did make a promise and again she promised to hold a vote and kind of like do you really want it to fail you know kind of so there's a lot of moving parts there but but when when legislators meet when legislative leaders make commitments like that even if they do it under duress that's a big deal and i'm sure that was motive you know that was um driving a lot of her actions and so again it it on the one hand, it sort of seemed like, "Oh, the progressive caucus is you know holding this all back, and there's a you know revolt on the left and all this kind of stuff and yet the House leadership wasn't whipping anybody Mm-mm. they were not they were not not only were they not like you know kind of breaking arms they weren't even leaning on anybody, and the White House wasn't either, so there was this kind of weird like what's going on here like are you trying to?" Are you trying to muscle the progressives or are you actually, are they your sort of cat's paw here? You know, which is it? So, so what's the deal?
0: I mean, I think you can kind of tell the answer to that based on how the progressives were talking about their interactions with Pelosi. Like I staked out a few of the meetings with Paul and Pelosi inside of Pelosi's office. And every time Paul came out and talked to the press, she made sure to say, You know, frankly, the speaker's been great. You know, she's been very understanding and blah, 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 blah. And that's just, that's not how you talk about someone who's trying to bend you to do something you don't want to do. I mean, it was pretty clear based on the fact that, you know, Clyburn said, and he was asked every day and he said, no, I haven't started whipping yet." including the day the vote was supposed to be held on, that they really their hearts weren't in it. And right. I kind of think that these last the Thursday and Friday negotiations of trying to bring together a framework, I think part of it was optics to show the Josh Cogheimers and the people who supported him you know, we tried, we did everything we could. And then I also think a part of it is it really was a dam breakage in the reconciliation negotiations. And I think leadership to some extent was trying to jump on that and be like, okay, here's your number. What else will you, what else will you accept? Like, can we get this rolling in earnest now? Because they have set themselves a new, though pretty arbitrary deadline of Halloween to move these two pieces of legislation, which is mostly just because that's when the extension on these like highway programs expires. They could just extend it again. It's really not that big a deal. But that's when they've kind of set themselves a new deadline. And nothing in Washington ever happens until the eve of the deadline. So I do think they were trying to kind of jump on this new momentum and keep it rolling and not get stuck in another one of these ruts where Mansion and Cinema, you know, won't give specifics and everything kind of grinds to a halt again. Right. But, you know, a really interesting part of this Mansion memo that is still somewhat of a mystery to me is I asked a lot of people, including people in Democratic leadership, they just did not know about the memo. No one right. except Schumer knew about it. And I mean, that goes all the way up to, I asked Durbin, who's the majority whip. If for whatever reason, maybe it was Manchin's demand that they don't start debating it until October. I, I have no idea, but Schumer did not share that with anybody else in the caucus.
1: Huh. I mean, it's 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 a weird thing because there were, certain, there were certainly a lot of... Um, There were certainly a lot of uh, Republicans who jumped on that and tried to make it like, oh, there was always a secret deal. Mm -hmm. This, you know, kind of basically trying to get the rest of the people in the Democratic Party to feel betrayed and kind of just blow everything up. Like, oh, there's a secret deal. This was all just, you know, kind of uh, kabuki theater for the progressives. You know, it's 1.5, you know, cry more libs and all that kind of stuff. And it it seemed very clear that for 10 different reasons that was clearly not the case because even the memo didn't say all right here's our agreement it, it just said here's my position and i may go higher but like you're on notice that if it's higher than this number i don't know if i'm going to be there so just right. you be on notice okay so um you know it's it's a it is a in business negotiations, sometimes you have sort of letters of understanding, you know, they're not binding. It just, let's kind of get it on paper where everybody is. So we kind of, you know, come back, you know, come back to this, that we're all kind of clear. Um, I don't think of that happening much in politics, not something I'm familiar with. I'm not, you know, I don't do that stuff for a living. So who knows? But, but as you know, kind of everybody seemed to be scratching their head a bit mm-hmm. um, and, and, and Schumer did sign it, but he seemed to sign it and says, uh, okay, cool, but obviously I'm going to try to change your mind on this because <laughs> this is all, uh, you know, I, I can't support this stuff. So so it was weird and yet, you know, I, I'll i be honest, I was afraid that the progressives were going to see this and say, oh, you know, kind of we've, you were operating behind our back, you know, the fix was in, blah, 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 blah. But I think everybody kind of saw like, no, I mean, it, you know, Not only did he sign something that wasn't agreeing to anything, he actually said, I'm not agreeing to anything, you know, in (laughs) the the, the funniest
0: part of it, it is like chicken scratch at the bottom that says, I will try to move Joe off many of these positions.
1: (laughs) Right, right, right. So kind of. And yet it was just kind of weird, like just just a kind of a a curveball thrown into the mix that didn't really change anything or mean anything, but everybody's like, okay, that's weird. How? What, what was going on there? I mean, I guess it was Manchin felt he needed to kind of put on paper what he was telling Schumer and wanted Schumer to acknowledge what he was telling him. And Schumer said, okay, I'll acknowledge it. I can't agree to that. And I'm going to try to change. So just weirdness
0: and honestly the funniest part of that piece of the saga to me was like moments after this mansion stuff comes out we get a rare you know scrawled off statement from Kirsten Cinema saying, no, 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 me too. Me too. I also told them my specifics. Schumer also knows my specifics, like not to be left out on a limb by herself. <laughs> Though, of course, she wouldn't share what those specifics were.
1: She, I mean, she's she's such a clown. I, I, I will say it's that is, you know, I said at the time and I kind of semi repeated it a few minutes ago that Gottheimer showed how much he had been ev- eviscerated by putting out that statement because mm-hmm. you you don't put out that statement if you're still part of the conversation. Right. You, you put out that statement if you've just been cut off at the knees and you're done for the purposes of that of 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 this discussion. And those two did not because as I said, they don't need to. They're not only still in the discussion, they're still leading the discussion. And yet cinema did over the weekend put out a a series had had a a series of kind of passive aggressive little spasms. Basically, I think there were a couple formal statements. There were a couple things she said. Like you know, it, clearly the 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 level of criticism of her is getting to her. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean she's going to fold, but she's feeling it. And I and and it does. It 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 did seem to me that I mean this isn't. This isn't news to us. I don't think it's news to our listeners. Um, but I, I got the sense as that whole thing was playing out over Thursday and Friday that there was a general sense, OK, Manchin is a kind of a Paul. He's got his M.O. He's kind of putting his opening bid out like kind of like, OK, we understand how he operates and he's that's that's that. And this greater sense of like, what is Kirsten Cinema's deal? Like what planet is she dialing in from? Because of people kind of separating them. Mm-hmm. And 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 ag- again, we've we've been doing that for a while, but the, the sort of the more, you know, kind of MSM, you know, kind of establishment voice is kind of saying, What is Kirsten Cinema up to?
0: Yeah. And I would say if there's one kind of lesson that I took away about her from this past week, it was that follow-up statement after Manchin's numbers came out. Because I think a thing that we, and I know our listeners have been wondering, is if Manchin caves on the big stuff, you know, we've talked about this in regards to the filibuster, will she be willing to be a woman on an island, to be on that branch alone, the only person left who's kind of standing between Democrats and basically an entire legislative agenda. Obviously, we don't know for sure. But based on that interaction, I am now much less inclined to say yes to that than I would have been before. And I never really thought it'd be that that likely that she'd stand by herself. But she couldn't even take the pressure of, everyone having received Manchin's kind of top line demands and asking where hers were I mean she couldn't she couldn't even do it for more than like an hour so and that pressure would be tenfold if he agreed to get rid of the filibuster and she didn't
1: well it's 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 funny because I I mean we can go back and listen to earlier episodes of the podcast that I was saying months ago he's the one yeah when he makes a decision she's gonna I fold think that's in a been second our position because, for a long time. because because <laughs> she's a poser and just a phony and a fraud and all that kind of stuff but I'll tell you over the- last week I was doubting that not because I think she is a a tougher character than I figured her for but I think she she became more inscrutable to me and I really did start to think that she has been spun up on this idea that she's the new McCain and she's got these you know kind of corporate pack types who've kind of sold her on this idea that this is her moment and we, the corporate types, really need to kill the reconciliation thing. So do it, do it. And I think people who've read my writing over the years and listened to me in this podcast, I'm not the type who says, oh, you're serving your, your corporate funding masters. That's just not how politics works. It's partly that, but it's just not, it, that's, it, that's not how it works. I was starting to think, and I'm still thinking, maybe that that is how it works for her not because she's she's uniquely corrupt because i think she is extremely egotistical and gullible and that she's been sold on this idea that this is her ticket and so who knows what she'll do but as you said that episode kind of brings us back to like no she'll fold in a second once 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 mansion sort of says what his you know says where he is
0: Right. So all this drama last week was kind of capped off with Joe Biden coming to the Hill, coming in front of House Democrats for the first time in person and delivering what, by all accounts, was like a pretty inspirational speech. I think he he showed up to kind of say, look, these two bills are linked. We need to pass them together, as this week has shown. And to not do so would be more than a big legislative loss. He put it in terms of this is about American democracy standing on the world stage. We need to show other countries that we are functional and, you know, have stature and can pass big, important legislation. And, you know, lawmakers, I guess with the the exception of Josh Gottheimer, but the vast majority of them coming out of that meeting were visibly buoyed by this visit and this speech. And I think, There was this sense of things are back on track. You know, we're all on the same page. And Biden kind of gave out a range of numbers during that speech, about 1.9 trillion to 2.2 trillion, about which I think is our best guess of where the ultimate package is going to be at this point. And as we've kind of seen throughout the process, it's really not the progressives who are being my way or the highway about this. I mean, if, you, if we remember, kind of the Bernie Sanders segment came into this negotiation just wanting a $10 million package, and now it looks like it's going to be in the neighborhood of two. I mean, that's a big concession. And there are some, including Bernie, who still won't acknowledge publicly that they're going to have to lower the top line. But overall, progressives were just kind of begging for tell us what you'll do. And we'll do as much as we can with what we're given. Um, And there is, you know, to some degree, I think that the COVID spending bill earlier in the term kind of recalibrated where we are in terms of congressional spending because... $2 2 trillion dollars is i mean that's a big package it's not 10 trillion but that's a big package and that's kind of where we're going to end up coming down to you know so that's kind of where we are now this week as the negotiations are are grinding back grinding back into gear and then and now we have you know the debt ceiling kind of sucking up some of the oxygen because a lot of the reconciliation stuff continues to go on behind closed doors. Now, do you, let me ask you this.
1: Do you have a sense when they came out of that meeting um, of everybody kind of pumped, you know, Mm
0: -hmm. Joe
1: inspired them, all that kind of stuff. Was that both, and and to give people a kind of a, a sense here there's what 220 or so uh d- the caucus is made up of 220 or so uh democrats um i believe there are nine about 90 in the progressive caucus so it's close to half it's a mm-hmm. lot um but a majority are not in the progressive caucus i w- what i'm going to ask is sort of like did the non-progressives to the extent you know the people not in that caucus, were they also pumped? And and one thing that I saw a couple days ago is there's a, she's not a freshman rep anymore. I think she's in her second term now. This woman, Alyssa Slotkin uh, from Michigan. And she's one of these people who came in on the, uh, you know, the 2018 wave. She's what they, what they call, you know, frontline members, you know, basically people from swing districts, people who are, you know, who, who, that that's going to be the story, whether they can hold on or not. And I noticed, you know, she was, um, she's not part of Gottheimer's crew, but she is one of those people who's in big danger, just inherently, right? Every, that's, that's why they call them frontline districts. And she is, she is playing this, like, I have no doubt that, in fact, Slotkin basically supports the whole program. But her position here is, oh, you know, I want to do the infrastructure bill, and I'll see on the reconciliation bill, I'm not a sure vote, I'm not a rubber stamp, I'm independent, all that kind of stuff. And I guess she was hoping they would vote for it, or at least saying, who knows where everybody really is here. But I'm curious, for the people who are not just the progressives, just the whole spectrum, what were, you know, besides Josh Gottheimer and a couple of his little, like, elves, what, 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 were, what, 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 mood, what was the mood?
0: A few non progressive House members did put out statements saying that the bills had to remain linked. It, it's definitely not just that part. And I think for most people, perhaps with the exception of people like Slotkin, who are super, super vulnerable, the sentiment is you know, the American people elected Biden and this really high stakes is scary election. And they gave us the majorities in Congress to enact Biden's vision. This is Biden's vision. And we want to give a Democratic president a win and a Democratic Congress a win. And that's something that the progressives did keep coming back to in these public statements. They're like, this is getting lost. This is getting written as the progressive position, but it's not. This is the president's position. And I think that kind of helped the progressives ending up taking on the kind of spokesman role for the vast majority of the party because the vast majority of house members want to pass Biden's legislative vision and that's what this is. So that's what I also think made moderates such the minority in in this kind of disruptive couple weeks.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because I I have no doubt there are there're certainly more than 10 members of the House Democratic Caucus, who you look at the whole bill, like, would is this really what exa- exactly what you would choose, like totally on your own? Probably not in every case. But as you say, there's this overriding thing of a Democratic president. They elected a Democratic president. They, by the narrowest margins, put in a Democratic Congress. There's just an understanding. You can't not deliver. Right. You just... That is that is not only is it cataclysmic politically but just in every front you just you you just president's the leader of the party, this is what he wants, and you just gotta pass it and i think I think broadly speaking there is you know there's a surprising amount of of unity broadly speaking, I think mm-hmm. everybody is really behind this, but to the extent that there's any kind of you know wiggliness on the margins kind of everybody gets you got it you just got to do it
0: and as much as there are so many downsides of having to govern through reconciliation that we've been over a lot one of the weird upsides is that they're trying to do absolutely everything at once so even if you know you're an individual house member and say you really don't like this one provision chances are there are enough provisions that touch on something you care about and that you want to pass that you'll kind of swallow the part you don't like and in favor of the the part you do. So I think that also plays in to that kind of overall dynamic we're talking about.
1: Right, right, right.
0: So all this brings us to this week where the reconciliation negotiations are going on behind closed doors. You know, we still got to figure out basically how to take a $3.5 trillion package and drop it down to at best 2.2, at worst high one trillions. And actually, I published a piece just before we came on about an idea that's kind of gaining steam among Senate Democrats on how to do this, which is instead of cutting out programs wholesale, potentially shortening their duration to bring down the overall cost of the bill. And then the hope is, even though these programs will expire earlier than they otherwise would, that the benefits you give people will be so popular by that point that it's just politically unpalatable not to reauthorize them. You know, this is all kind of working off the the common wisdom that it's much harder to take away benefits after you've already given them to people than to never give them at all. Um, So I asked around a lot about that this week and was kind of surprised a bit just by the swath of lawmakers that are open to this. I think right now it's an idea that even kind of stalwart progressives are willing, very willing to keep on the table. And I guess it makes sense, you know, when presented with the idea of you will not have this program at all, or you will have this program for a few years and set up a really hard vote in the future. I mean, that's the better option. And now there's some, you know, some downsides that lawmakers brought up with me, like Tammy Duckworth was talking about a concern that things like, especially in the climate change realm that depend on investment it can be harder to get investors when the future of the program is uncertain. And, you know, Bob Casey brought up with me, there's this program that basically gives enhanced Medicaid matching dollars to states that give like home and community care to people who are Medicaid beneficiaries. And it's kind of, it's a similar problem, right? You need states to buy in and they might not be willing to buy in as much if the programs are shorter. But overall, just the conviction I got from everyone from, you know, Elizabeth Warren to Brian Schatz to um, you know I talked to to Stabino to they just to a whole bunch of people was just kind of yeah that's something we're really actively looking at and considering as a way to bring the top line down.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the whole ten-year budgetary model mm-hmm. sort of amounts to negotiating against yourself, right? right? Because you know you're you're creating this you know, Republicans have even taken advantage of this where they're saying, you know, 3.5 trillion, that's Mm -hmm. 20 times more than we spend on, and just ignoring the fact that it's a 10 year thing. This isn't $3.5 trillion a year or one year or anything like that. So there's a kind of a, there's a, there's a, an element of negotiating against yourself. The other part of it is, is that Congress does not cease to be Congress next year. Things can be These things are not really locked in stone. They can all, a subsequent Congress can just get rid of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there's, it gets very complicated because as long as Joe Biden's president, he's not going to sign any bills that do that. But there's also the appropriations. You can have the law, but but a new Congress has to keep appropriating the money. So unfortunately, no matter what you call it, each year, it's going to, you know, it's not locked in for 10 years. And so since the reality is it is not really locked in for 10 years, it kind of doesn't make sense to be too hung up on budgeting it as 10 years, right? right? Since you since you don't really have that ability to bind future Congresses. So it does, I mean, I, w- I was telling um, Kate before we started recording this afternoon, at some level... How long you make the time horizon means you can kind of make it any number you want mm-hmm. you can make it a cabillion dollars or you can make it five hundred billion dollars or just you know it it it, it it's it's it is sort of negotiating against yourself in a way. Now, but to this point, as you say, that some of these things you need the pri- you know, a lot of the climate stuff, you need the private sector to kind of buy in. that's, that's real. Although, um, if you go back to one of the sort of the founding actions of the entire country, um, the federal government's assumption of the state, of the individual state debts coming out of the revolution, um what that did and this is why even though he's a controversial figure in our history Alexander Hamilton was really kind of brilliant he basically got organized wealth in the nascent United States to get very invested in the new federal state because that's where that's who they'd loan their money to the federal government was assuming the debt it's kind of it's potentially kind of similar In that if you do this and you create a cliff after five years, again, whether you get the buy-in, but to the extent you do get the buy-in, you create a, a lot of people with a vested interest in it continuing. And that's a big deal.
0: Right. Right. And then the other thing that's kind of looming, actually will loom hours after we finish this podcast, is the Senate will take another vote on suspending the debt ceiling through regular order. This is a bill that already passed in the House. Uh, Republicans are sure to filibuster it. It's not going to go anywhere. And then we're kind of left in this debt ceiling standoff where we've been. You know, I staked out the Democrats' lunch yesterday and it was all about the debt ceiling. That's all they talked about. And they all came out, you know, singing from the same songbook saying we are not going to raise it through reconciliation. It's Republicans' responsibility to help us do it, and we're going to do it through regular order. If that continues, even for a bit longer, because most estimates say it'll take about two weeks or so to do it through reconciliation, that's a bit squishy, and it could be different if they can get If they could get McConnell to agree to a time agreement, a.k.a. that Republicans wouldn't kind of like draw out the votorama to as long as it possibly could be, um, that kind of thing. It could be a little shorter, but pretty soon we're going to get into the time where there simply isn't enough time to do it through reconciliation. And then that leaves us in this standoff where one of two things has to happen. Either 10 Republicans have to help Democrats defeat the filibuster and pass the legislation or... Democrats have to agree to some kind of filibuster carve out to pass it themselves. And we're kind of hurtling towards that reality. We're not quite at the part where reconciliation is off the table, but soon we're going to be past that point.
1: And so, OK, so let's play this out. And then I got a question for you mm-hmm. that, um, a- as you say, or, or just to play out what you're what you're saying, we're quickly going to get to a point where even if the Democrats want to cave, they can't cave because right. they don't have enough time to cave. Mm hmm. And then we're in a situation where it's default or you need to do it with 50 votes. The reconciliation thing is not available. It seems to me, despite just what I've picked up from miscellaneous quotes over the last 24 hours, is they seem to be moving towards, we've just got to carve this out. There's we're, there's not going to be any other way to do it. And Mansion. I guess there was some question about a quote he said yesterday, mm-hmm, whether mm-hmm. whether people had transcribed it right. At least on the surface, he seems to be saying, nope, we're not doing the filibuster thing. But what's your read on, you know, uh, what people are saying or whatever?
0: Well, I would say this, that quote of Manchin's is a bit in dispute, but he either said, I'm not ruling anything out or I'm not going to talk about it. So I do think it's important that he hasn't said no. I think that's notable. I would say they are just refusing to talk about this refusing which honestly makes me think it's more of a possibility than if they were talking about it like leadership's not talking about it rank and file came out of that lunch didn't talk about it even though we found out from some leaks later that they did it was a topic of discussion at the lunch um and I think uh, the possibility that's kind of being batted around is a temporary carve out perhaps like a a one-day carve-out or something. Sort of like a Bush
1: v. Gore, we yeah. shall never speak of this again carve-out.
0: <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, because I think you just come down to a point where you're like, which of those options is more likely? Some kind of, like, a, a 24-hour caving on the filibuster from Mansion and Cinema, or 10 Republicans helping Democrats overcome the filibuster? I mean, when have 10 Republicans joined with Democrats to do much of anything? especially after now they've spent months staking out their position on this.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, as is so often the case, um, is that really distinguishable from McConnell caving? Right. I mean, that's how he would cave. I mean, Mm -hmm. how you, how you agree to, I mean, we're so deep into, into the filibuster rabbit hole. We forget that the normal course of things is 50 (laughs) votes. Right. Okay. And if, someone doesn't want to let it to be 50 votes, they object. And then you need 60 votes to overrule it. Mm -hmm. I know I'm not, most people get this, but just kind of let's walk through it. And so when we talk about is McConnell gonna cave, he would cave by allowing 10 of his members to vote, right? So these are all kind of, it's not like, well, he didn't cave, but 10 Republican, I mean, these are all the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um. It just seems to me, I don't, I don't. I mean, the idea that you're going to do this kind of like, you know, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We'll never speak it of, of it again. Filibuster car, carve out seems absurd, but I have to imagine that that the people up there are not going to let the country actually go into debt default, and that is the only scenario that I can see being. I mean. It seems totally unlikely, but the other options are less likely.
0: Yeah, honestly, my bet for a long time was that Democrats are kind of going to take a stand for as long as they can. then they're going to be like, okay, fine, we'll do it through reconciliation just because I don't know. That's kind of the the more typical Democratic move. Right. To do. I mean, on the one hand, it's responsible. On the other hand, it's, you know, not fighting Republican fire with fire. Uh, You know, it just it seems more in their arsenal. But we are starting to get to a point where I'm I'm having doubts.
1: That is my, I mean, again, that is 100% my assumption. And it's only because to the extent you take the words of the people who know this stuff, we're at the point where, you know, we're, we're close to the point where there literally will be no time. And I get, it really doesn't seem like they're going to, like tomorrow Schumer's going to say, okay, fine, fuck it, man, we're going to do it.
0: You it would idiots. It would be an enormous reversal with no kind of precursors to that reversal,
1: yeah. i I yeah, I mean, I guess this, we shall see
0: this actually segues really well into a question we got from Mark, who says, what I'm wondering is if Senate Democrats decide to make a filibuster carve out for the debt ceiling, would that increase the possibility that they do the same for voting rights legislation in order to pass something like the Mansion Klobuchar bill? It seems to me that once you decide that it's acceptable to do a filibuster carve out, it's going to be extremely difficult to explain why it was necessary for an arcane issue like raising the debt ceiling, but not for something necessary or appropriate or as fundamental as voting rights.
1: You know, my initial reaction to this was it doesn't change anything at all. Why should it? You can do it on one thing and and not on the other. and And that is why. I have not thought that they would actually object that much because there's no slippery slope. It just, we did it on this. We're not doing it on that. You know, you blah, 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 blah. But as I think about it, maybe I'm not quite thinking it through in all the dimensions because, yeah, you kind of, you do kind of say like, wow, you know what? After all this stuff, it just took this little thing And that cataclysmic problem just vanished and kind of like it could vanish on all these other things. So maybe, maybe there's more of a slippery slope than I think. I don't, I don't think so, but maybe I'm, I'm not really kind of grappling
0: with the implications of that. My head is in a similar place. And I think for the anti filibuster folks, the hopefulness on it emerges from, I think, the fact that Manchin and cinema can no longer say, We will never weaken or roll back the filibuster. I mean, like, once you're moved off that position, you're moved off that position. And I, not that cinema ever responds to any reporters' questions, but then you do start to get the question of why the debt ceiling and not voting rights. Do you see? the decline of democracy as less of a crisis than the decline of the United States faith and credit. You know, I mean, it does, I I am inclined to agree with you that just from the way these two operate, there doesn't necessarily have to be a lot of logical consistency in what they do, but I do think it opens them up. It opens them up to some like hard to argue valid criticisms that might get under their skin.
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: Okay. Another question um, from Eric. He says, so Speaker Jayapal, kidding mostly, but I'm interested in thoughts on whether recent events mark a change in the balance of power within the House Democratic Caucus. I think what's interesting about this to me is it is, a. I think it's a shift in the balance of power, but I think it's because moderates, moderate centrists, whatever you want to call them, are just really out of step with the bulk of the party right now. They are like, they're significantly to the right of where the center of the party is, which is, I think why progressives have kind of gone from, you know, a a more fringe demanding group to kind of speaking for the vast majority of the party.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, first of all, I'll say that she has just been very impressive in how she has managed this several weeks as a legislative leader. Um, really impressive it, it it's uh i've been watching these things long enough to kind of know when someone you know she kind of made it look easy but it's not easy right um so that's the first off uh i don't know i mean I, you you don't you don't become a, a speaker or majority leader or minority leader by being the head of one faction so probably not at least in the short term um on the other hand i think. Kate is exactly right. That what you really see here is that they were kind of, I don't want to say carrying water for the leadership. They mm-hmm. were kind of fighting the leadership's fight. Um and that was, but that is also um, that is also a measure of her canniness as a legislative leader. Because she was not and she got her members to also be with her on this she was not saying we're super powerful you can't do this without us so 3.5 or nothing she 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 took a a, a pretty pragmatic approach mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that allowed her again to in effect be speaking for kind of the whole party in a in a weird way, even though, you know, she's pretty left wing. Um, there's a reason that, you know, that that's the left of the Democratic Party in, in, in Congress. Right. But it was just it was just very, very cannily handled by her.
0: Yeah. And I do want to say in in that same vein, you know, not to take away their accomplishment, getting 96 lawmakers to hang together during a tough week like last week. That's that's an accomplishment. No way, no matter which way you slice it. That being said, they were not they were not under pressure from leadership. They weren't under pressure from the White House. I mean, those two very, very powerful forces were behind them and on their side. And that makes things easier. I mean, they weren't fighting a war on many fronts. Um, And I would also say, kind of like we said before, they were pushing for the president's agenda. So like you say, they kind of had a practicable argument. They said, we want these two things to stay together. They didn't say $10 trillion package or nothing. You know, they didn't say if, unless the Senate passes reconciliation by this Friday, like we're done. They had a pretty reasonable ask. And I think that made it a lot easier to stand behind. Whereas the Gottheimers of the world had to stand behind an arbitrary deadline they got from kind of holding the speaker hostage. And I think that was also just a much harder argument to make because it really wasn't substantive at all. It was all pretty performative.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think his position, it's a very interesting thing about the evolution of the democratic party in the last decade or so, because it was pretty clear. He was trying to break things. He was trying to de-link these two bills Mm -hmm. and you generally threaten big stuff when you're kind of at the margins of the of the discussion. And what was interesting was that Jayapal, as the head of the Progressive Caucus, was speaking more of a stake as a stakeholder, as a party stakeholder, of kind of saying, "Look, we're, we get we're not going to get everything we want here, but we need to." we need to come to some agreement you need to tell us where you are we need to kind of come to some sort of framework agreement because this we can't let this blow up that's not that's not okay so in some ways the most illuminating way to see this is that um the progressive caucus leaders the progressives weren't being you know flamethrowers they were they were speaking as, again, party stakeholders. And it was really the Gottheimer people who were sort of like, do exactly what I say, or I'm blowing the whole thing up.
0: Exactly. And I think that dynamic gets missed sometimes because, especially in the, you know, kind of quote unquote beltway press, there is just this constant inclination to take moderates as the more kind of sober, serious faction and progressives as the Kind of like diehard, demanding dreamers asking for things that simply can't be accomplished, and that that is just, especially in this scenario, that's just not how things were working.
1: And and one thing that's worth just just briefly, because we need to get through the other questions. What's really notable here is the progressives are striking their claim on budgetary issues, which have a lot of broad capture and popularity. They're not doing it on to fund the police or pronouns you know what i'm saying they're not they they are they are fighting this on fiscal policy where there is a lot of consensus among democrats they are at the moment not getting into a whole separate range of issues that are more divisive for democrats at least for now
0: right okay question from henry who says he, supports, he identifies as a progressive and supports the two-part bill for infrastructure, but he's having a hard time understanding the mindset around tanking the entire infrastructure package just to make a point to cinema and Manchin. He says squandering this opportunity is unacceptable, and as a voter, he'd be angry if we turned down a sandwich because it wasn't a steak dinner. So this kind of goes back to a dynamic that's not as... That's not happening in this moment as much as it was last week. But the idea that we talked about last pod, where if if moderates do successfully decouple these two, bi- these two bills, progressives should sink the bipartisan bill rather than kind of gifting them what they want and letting them turn around and kill the reconciliation package.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's a good question. Um, and I, I think it is a case... I certainly don't think it ever made sense to kill the infrastructure bill to spite Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin. What I did think was sometimes you have to take a calculated risk to force your way, not necessarily getting everything you want, but not getting rolled over. And that cannot be effective unless you're really willing to do it. And to me, that was a reason to be willing to vote down that bill. I also think more generally, um, as a political movement, there is a certain level of impotence or powerlessness that is unacceptable, and that that was another reason not to be dictated to. So, again, to the extent that we're talking about my thinking about this, it was never a matter of you should vote this down just to kind of stick it to those two. That doesn't make sense. But I do think there were very good reasons, as I just described, for not just threatening, but threatening and be willing to follow through on that, that, that you, that that bill was not going to be passed in the way that these handful of holdouts demanded.
0: And I do think because these two bills were broken into two, that it gives the false impression that they are two halves of a whole. And they're really, really not. I mean, the bipartisan bill is basically just like a surface transportation bill. It's honestly not that different than what almost got passed under the Trump administration if they hadn't been so incompetent and like kind of bungled it. But- the reconciliation bill is, you know, can be transformative, anti-poverty, anti-climate change, healthcare expansions. They're really not, it's not at all like these two pieces of legislation are 50-50. It's like 10% and 90%. So to in my mind, when we were thinking about this last week, the idea that the bipartisan bill would pass alone and reconciliation wouldn't, is really not at all very different from that neither of these pieces of legislation pass. Like, I don't think the bipartisan bill passing alone is going to make much of an electoral difference for Democrats. I don't think it's going to change the trajectory of Biden's presidency. It's just not that big a piece of legislation. So that's where my mind was at about it.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I am in isolation i'm probably a little more bullish on that but on that bill but we i think we end up at the same at the same place i mean that in the heat of the moment last week um a, a few people who you know kind of commentators who have you know sort of similar politics to mine in the sense of pragmatic not terribly ideological kind of center point of the democratic party that kind of that kind of thing sort of saying like if if this is the upshot of the of the biden presidency to having a kind of a souped up highway bill after everything that's just
0: yeah that's what i'm saying that's
1: that's calamitous yeah all right all right so oh those are our two questions three Oh, we uh, it's, it's it we spun through. Having I, fun. I I I lost track of of, <laughs> of, of, of of how many questions we'd answered. All right. So, uh, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew. Ice coffee you can get 25% off your first order at gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. And 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 everybody is about to hear we're totally professionals now. What are they about <laughs> to hear? Let us know
0: yeah well we're gonna have a little outro with some yeah. credits yeah so uh stay tuned for that
1: yeah because this isn't this isn't just kate and i you know doing this with you know on a on a on a, on a um what is what is, <laughs> what are the things that predated ipods what were those things
0: Your mp3 players <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is why you're showing you're in your mid-20s. No, the things we use like in the 80s with cassette tapes. What were those Walkman. things called? Walkman. Right. This Boom. isn't just Kate and I on our Walkman, like recording this thing. This thing is seriously professional now. So anyway, thanks, folks. Thanks. See you next week. See you next
0: week. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.